Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, author Martin Dykeman has written three insightful books about Florida government and politics. Things we thought were one way back then, and the hindsight of history, and people who are willing to talk then, who are not willing to talk then, or are willing to talk now, you find out a completely different perspective. We'll remember actress Catherine Hepburn's time in Florida, and visit St. Michael's Historic Cemetery in Pensacola. It's quite possible that the area right within or around St. Michael's Cemetery was being used as a burying place by the British as early as the 1760s. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Odiaskew and the Golden Age of Florida Politics is the latest book by Martin Dykeman. His other books are Floridian of His Century, The Courage of Governor Leroy Collins, and A Most Disorderly Court, Scandal and Reform in the Florida Judiciary. For nearly four decades, Martin Dykeman was a reporter and associate editor of the St. Petersburg Times, where his focus was primarily on Florida government and politics. That experience gave him a lot of great background material for the books he is now writing. Now, I didn't cover Leroy Collins, uh, who is so um, vital to the development of politics in Florida, but I knew many of the people that had worked for him and had the opportunity to see how his example uh, informed their lives. Uh, everything else that I've written about was something that came up during the course of my work as a journalist in, in Tallahassee. Martin Dykeman's first book, published in 2006, is Floridian of His Century, The Courage of Governor Leroy Collins. Dykeman says that Collins started out as a segregationist, but had a dramatic change of heart that had a profound impact on Florida history. There were some members of his family who didn't particularly like the treatment of the book because I said he was a segregationist, or he campaigned as one. Now, you never know what's in a person's heart, but it's important to remember, he was a child of his times, brought up in uh, the Deep South in Tallahassee. At that time, was the Deep South, and it was never... Came, he was never that kind of segregationist to put on a white sheet and went out and hurt people. That was He was horrified by that thing. In fact, he passed one of the first bills to unmask the Ku Klux Klan. But he was never prepared to challenge segregation per se until he became governor and had to realize that the world was changing and he needed to change with it. 
Uh, many Southern politicians did not make that transi transition nearly as quickly or as gracefully as he did. But in the span of a mere 10 years, he went from saying segregation is our way of life and our law and I will do everything I can to preserve it, to declaring that civil rights is the most important issue of our time. 10 years, that's, that's quite a rapid evolution. Governor Collins really helped to usher in the new era of civil rights, and not just in Florida, thanks to President Lyndon Johnson. He was the founding director of the Community Relations Service, and until, uh, until I did this research and listened to the Johnson tapes, which were not available earlier, I did not know, nor did anybody in his family know, that he had not been Johnson's first choice for a job that everyone else knew would destroy his political career. And I think he knew it too, but he said he was too much of a patriot to turn it down. To be seen working in the field of civil rights, even in the position of a mediator, and that's what his job was, was hardly the way to win an election in a state that was still trying to shed its southern segregationist Confederate history. In fact, when Johnson was talking about that with um, George Smathers, a uh, person who was uh, afraid that Collins might run against him, they shared a laugh over the fact that it wouldn't be too good for Collins' first political career. Now, he might have survived it had the job not taken him to Selma, uh, where after the march was already underway, he went to the, to the marchers to negotiate their peaceful entrance into the capital of Montgomery. In order to do that, he had to talk to them. They were already marching down the road. So Collins got out of his car, walked with the marchers for about a mile where he was talking with Martin Luther King. A cameraman took a picture of that and it appeared in all the Florida newspapers that same day. When Collins got home to the airport in Tallahassee that night, he called his wife and said, there's no taxi here, can you come and get me? She said, well, no, I can't. The house is full of sleeping grandchildren. I said, well, I can't get a cab. How am I going to get home? Well, she said, you might as well march. She was upset. Uh, and he t Collins himself told the story many times, sort of ruefully, after a while, with a little bit of a smile. Uh, but that I think that hurt him terribly when he ran for the U.S. Senate in Florida in 1968. That picture was everywhere. Martin Dykeman's second book, published in 2008, is A Most Disorderly Court, Scandal and Reform in the Florida Judiciary. Dykeman was one of the primary reporters to expose the horrible behavior of Florida's Supreme Court in the 1970s. He explains what was going on. Most of the judges there had gotten there through traditional politics, either through winning an election that the public didn't care about and voted for the first name on the ballot, or because the governor had appointed them for a political favor. The, um, and their ethics were the kind of ethics you might hope not to see in a judge, and you, you, it's bad enough when you see them in, in, in elected politicians in one case, uh, he'd barely gotten to Tallahassee when he, uh, when he tried to fix a case for a campaign supporter pending before a circuit court in, the, in North Florida. Uh, another judge uh, actually tried to fix a case for, um, for some campaign supporters, and that was a criminal case. And when he couldn't persuade the District Court of Appeal to overturn the conviction, he took part in overturning it himself. I reported in that man's case that he had taken a $10,000 bribe and small bills dumped in his desk in the Supreme Court building. Those two justices resigned. A third justice was supposed to write the opinion in a major case affecting how utilities would be treated, how the corporate tax would be treated for rate-making purposes. And he was having trouble writing it, so, so he was playing golf with an attorney, an old friend who happened to be an attorney for one of the companies affected by the suit. 
uh, should not have been talking about the case with, with, with him at all and probably should not even have been playing golf with him. But they not only talked about the case, but it was agreed that the lawyer would write what amounted to be a proposed opinion for the court, the other side knowing nothing about this. The uh, justice finally got cold feet when his law clerk found the document and said, what the blankety-blank is this? And he went in the men's room with the, with the clerk and decided to get rid of the incriminating evidence by tearing it up into strips and flushing it down the toilet. But another justice also had a copy of it. He didn't know that. The other justice used it to write an opinion. When the law clerk saw that, they blew the whistle. It all got out to the press, mostly through me. Finally, there was a big investigation. Two of the justices involved in all these things had to resign. The third one, the golf-playing justice, uh, was let off on his promise to take a mental exam that the legislative committee assumed would get him retired for disability. He passed it instead and spent the rest of his career boasting that he was the only justice who could prove his sanity. When Martin Dykeman's book about the Florida Supreme Court was published, lawyers and judges who had graduated from Florida law schools in the last three decades were stunned that they had never been told about the scandals Dykeman uncovered in the 1970s. Dykeman says he is very concerned about the short institutional memory in our state. That's probably the worst thing in Florida right now. Term limits, one of the four worst mistakes Florida voters ever made, have made a legislature a, a ship of fools because nobody has any memory of what went before. That's one reason we wrote the book, The Most Disorderly Court, to try to remind people what happens when politics is allowed to infect the courts. Uh, during that period, Governor Askew created nominating commissions, which he could not control to select candidates for judgeships. And that worked fine until 2001 when the legislature gave the governor the power to appoint all nine members of each commission. Uh, politics is coming back into the courts. Uh, we still have elections for the trial courts, but the courts I'm worried about are the appeals courts where public policy is decided and the Constitution is interpreted and the laws are applied. Uh, that's, they're going to be political again, and they're going to have another ethical crisis again. Some may say you already had one. The First District Court of Appeal Courthouse scandal in Tallahassee. The judge responsible for that expensive atrocity thought nothing of sitting on a case involving the landowner, where they intended to build the building, and whose dispensation they might have needed, though it turned out they didn't, to go ahead with it. But to me, that was an ethical Trans transgression of the highest order, and yet they haven't charged him with it. Martin Dykeman's latest book, published in 2011, is called Ruben Odie Askew and the Golden Age of Florida Politics. Askew was part of the reform movement that cleaned up the problems Dykeman wrote about in a most disorderly court. Oh, well, he was one of the legislators that period, certainly, and I would try to point out in the book, somebody said I put too many people in the book, sort of like Mozart having too many notes in his operas, but there really was. This is a story about an age, not just the one man, although he was emblematic of it. It's his story that I tell in detail, but there were so many others who were public-spirited people, liberated by the reapportionment decisions of the Supreme Court, that gave it made Florida's modern legislature, and I, I have a. It takes you can't say it in, without catching your breath about a dozen times. But there was a laundry list of maybe fifty major accomplishments during this period: pollution control, environmental protection, a reorganization of the executive branch and the judiciary. Askew's crowning achievements probably were in trying to give us a nonpartisan, independent. Judiciary, And when people talk about the independence of the judiciary, what they really mean is the integrity. Askew was strongly for that. If I would say that was probably his greatest contribution, and it's being eroded. I wish the people would understand that and rise up and do something about it.
To be able to call Reuben Askew's era the Golden Age indicates that we have left that period and entered something less than golden. Dykeman says that many of the great achievements of Florida's golden age of politics have been lost. Well, most of them have been lost. Askew's other great achievement was to pass a corporate profits tax that the new governor wants to repeal. Uh, and growth management has been effectively repealed. Uh, the pollution control agencies have been weakened. Uh, governor Graham, his successor, tried to emphasize education, and uh, now nobody wants to spend any money on that. Uh, the legislature is so intensely partisan that the majority party sees no need at any occasion to reach a compromise with the minority. That was certainly not the case back in the 1970s when the Democrats were in power and the Republicans were the minority. But the fact that they worked together owed to the quality of leadership on both sides. The Democratic Speaker Dick Pettigrew and the Republican House Leader Don Reed were good personal friends. And they thought it was important to be that way. The court reforms I described, uh, the, the, the Florida's modern court system, without Reed, it couldn't have happened. And both the governor and the, and the speaker paid him tribute to that. And that's a lasting achievement. That was a perfect example of what happens when people work in a bipartisan way toward a common objective. You don't see that in Washington any longer. You don't see it in Tallahassee. There are many reasons, but we've got to do something about it. Working under newspaper deadlines is exciting, but Dykeman is now enjoying the freedom to delve deeper into his subjects in book form. Oh, absolutely. And once in a while, you find things you never knew. I've got some instances in the book, things we thought were one way back then, in the hindsight of history, and people who are willing to talk then, who are not willing to talk then or are willing to talk now, you find out a completely different perspective. You also find things in the archives you didn't know were there. Martin Dykeman's latest book is Ruben Odiascu and the Golden Age of Florida Politics, published by the University Press of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to search the Library of Florida History collection, listen to archived editions of this program, watch exclusive video, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our newsletter, The Society Report, and our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Bonnie McEwen, Director of Archaeology at Mission San Luis, Tallahassee. The history of Spanish Florida is filled with accounts of intrigue and sometimes tragedy. One day at Mission San Luis, near present-day Tallahassee, the wife of the deputy governor told an Appalachian Indian woman to collect chestnuts for her. 
The woman asked not to go, saying her young daughter had an infirmity and required constant attention. The deputy governor's wife insisted, assuring her that she would watch over the child. When the Appalachian woman returned a few hours later, her daughter was nowhere to be found. Later, the child was discovered drowned in a nearby spring. It is unknown if the little girl wandered off on her own, if she was sent to collect water and had an accident, or if something more sinister took place. Regardless, the death of a child is no less heartbreaking today than it was then, 300 years ago. Bonnie McEwen is Director of Archaeology at Mission San Luis, Tallahassee. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. The United States of America presents the Victory Theater. Theater brings you Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, Lieutenant James Stewart, Ruth Hussey, and Virginia Widler in The Philadelphia Story. Ladies and gentlemen, speaking for the United States government, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. This is a great moment in the American theater, the opening night of a great new theater, dedicated to those principles for which free peoples are now fighting on the battlefields of the world, dedicated above all to victory. Each Monday night, a popular Columbia Network program will donate an extra performance in the service of the United States. Speaking for the sponsor and staff of our theater, which you've heard on Mondays at this same time for many years, and speaking for myself, we are highly honored that the government has asked us to produce this first program. We've met this challenge with a four-star premiere worthy of the star-spangled purpose behind the Victory Theater. Our play is Philip Barry's brilliant comedy, The Philadelphia Story, and our stars are the same famous quartet who played it on the screen. Terry Grant, Catherine Hepburn, James Stewart, and Ruth Hussey. That recording is from the premiere of the 1940 film version of The Philadelphia Story at the Victory Theater. Both the Broadway play and the film starred Katherine Hepburn, who was a part-time resident of Florida. Janie Gould has one man's remembrance of his star encounter. The late Ted Otterson, one of Stewart's first lawyers, sometimes played tennis at the Jupiter Island Club, where he had clients and friends. His son, Bill Otterson, was a high school tennis player in the early 1940s. From time to time, both of them got calls to play at the club. One of the calls was to play tennis with these two ladies who were down from New York. Catherine Hepburn and her sister Peg. So Dad and I played tennis with the two Hepburns. How did you feel when you knew you were going to play with them, with Catherine Hepburn? Very excited. I was a senior in high school. I don't care. I've been 50 years old. I've still been big. (laughs) Bragging rights. Yeah, but it was very much fun and just pleasant any way you look at it. I played maybe tennis with her twice. I had a little autograph book. I asked her to sign it one day, and she did... She had some comment about me, but then she had Dad and Peg, four, Catherine, or Kate, I don't know, and Billy, 
six. So she put in the autograph book that she and I beat my dad and her sister. That needs to be remembered. You bet your life. After she signed it, apparently I did not bring it back with me. And I had no idea where it was. That upset me. But it was a day or two later, I was in high school at Stewart High, the assembly. Front row, aisle seat was mine. Anyway, somebody come down and says, Billy, said, some lady wants to see you. Who? I don't know. So I go up. It's Catherine Hepburn with my autograph book. And I had already bragged about playing tennis with her and all that, but of course nobody believed me. But the kids in the back row there, they saw Catherine Hepburn. I was big man on the campus for at least a few days. Hepburn happened to be in town on another occasion when one of her best-known films, The Philadelphia Story, was playing at the Lyric. Oh, you're slipping red. I used to be afraid of that look. The withering glance of the goddess. I didn't think that alcohol would do. Oh, shut up. She had been in the play, I understand, also. But anyway, so it had to be Dad asked if she would like to maybe come up and see the movie with us. And we did, in the balcony of the Lyric Theater. My mother, my dad, Catherine, and my sister, Rosalie, and I were there. But, as you might guess, we were really whispering and talking and giggling a little more than we should have. And people became more and more agitated with us because they were trying to see the movie. Somebody finally came down to let, please, quiet down and either... That person noticed, or my dad said, this is Miss Hepburn explaining things to her. There wasn't a soul sitting in the balcony that were not right around us. <laughs> but she would describe little thing after little thing after little thing. It, it happened either in the stage play, and it was funny, and they left it in, put it in the movie. This one scene, a horse had to step on a magazine. It just horses don't step on magazines. And just little things like it. Cary Grant, I think it was he, burned his finger on lighting a match, maybe a cigarette. That happened by mistake in the play, but it was a good laugh. So they left it in the movie? It's in the movie, yeah. The opening scene, somebody pushes one of the men, I mean right back on the back, outside of the house. It was a rough push, and it looked like a healthy fall. There was a big, big mattress waiting for the body as it came down. Bill Otterson lives in Palm City. Cheney Gould prepared that report. The forest reached the stream. The Philadelphia story ran for a year on Broadway with Miss Hepburn as the star. Backstage one night, I tried to persuade the lady to let me make the picture. She was very gracious, but another producer made the picture. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida has some of the oldest cemeteries in the country, places that can provide us with a valuable understanding of the past. Bill Dudley has this report on an historic Florida cemetery that has united a community across racial and ethnic lines. In the heart of downtown Pensacola, historic St. Michael's Cemetery may hold the remains of some of Florida's first European settlers, according to University of West Florida archaeologist Marco Stringfield. It's quite possible that the area right within or around St. Michael's Cemetery was being used as a burying place by the British as early as the 1760s. The oldest marked grave in the cemetery dates to 1811, and we do have a good bit of archival research that ties it into Pensacola's second Spanish period, which uh, began in the 1780s. Stringfield is principal investigator for the St. Michael's Cemetery Restoration Project. She says over the years, hurricanes and other natural forces have taken their toll on the cemetery, as well as misguided efforts to tidy up around the grounds. 
But ironically, the single most destructive event in recent history may also have been one of the most beneficial for St. Michael's long-term preservation. Well, in the spring of 99, we had a particularly violent episode of vandalism in St. Michael's Cemetery, and it really drew people's attention. It uh, really galvanized our community, and uh, people stepped forward. Uh, Community groups, individuals just came forward and said, what can we do to help? And so we have had a wonderful outpouring of public response. Beginning last year, the university spearheaded a broad-based initiative involving the city's preservation board, private industry, schools, even local theater groups, all to inform the public of the challenges facing St. Michael's, as well as why we should preserve sites like this around the state. The history of the cemetery and how it developed is usually also indicative of how the community around it developed. The markers themselves can tell us status of the people, their religion, their ethnic background. It can give us clues about epidemics that have moved through the area, aging populations, all types of information. Sharon Thompson, founder and head of the Center for Historic Cemeteries Preservation, says today's cemeteries are the product of some two centuries of evolution. Most American burial traditions that we see now had their root in medieval Europe. 300 years ago, most of the burying places were associated with churches. People of high rank were buried, sometimes in the floor of the church or in caverns beneath the church, outside the church in the yard. And as the graveyard got more and more crowded with corpses, the graves would be reused. And in many cases, the sanitary conditions were abominable. The late 1700s saw a movement away from the church and eventually out of the town itself. 19th century cemeteries became greener and more friendly, paving the way for the professionally managed lawns and memorial gardens of 20th century America. The cemeteries were on large tracts of land outside of the urban area. They were often landscaped beautifully with different types of trees and patterns of paths and lakes and ponds and statuary that made the cemetery more like a park. All this reflects modern America's trend away from personal contact with the dead. It used to be that when people died, the family and the community washed the body, dug the grave, did the funeral. And as the funeral process became more secular, more professional, that led to the rise of these types of cemeteries. Meanwhile, Florida has been one of the first states in the nation to recognize the importance of its historic cemeteries, funding efforts to preserve sites in Key West, St. Augustine, Tallahassee, as well as St. Michael's. And this is what you would see off of the radar from that area. These are three contiguous lines, uh, one space one meter apart. At a well-attended public meeting, townspeople learn how UWF archaeologists are working with NASA scientists using ground-penetrating radar to develop a GIS, or Geographic Information System, to map the location of everything above and below ground. We have also tied this to a database of tombstone information, and this is going to be available to the public. So in essence, you'll be able to take a um, virtual tour of the cemetery, click onto any name or any tombstone, and be able to pull up all of the information that we have about that tombstone. Margot Stringfield says a cemetery like St. Michael's is reflective 
both of a culture and a society. If you look in St. Michael's Cemetery, you would see a cross-section of the very diverse population that made up the founding of our city and was very instrumental in how Pensacola was formed. You see not only a real vivid picture of the people that were in Pensacola, but also the events that affected them. We, we see a wonderful example of the people that came to Pensacola from all over the world to make their lives here on the Gulf Coast frontier. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week right here, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to get all the latest updates. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.